This episode of All Things Reconsidered is supported by the Socratic Method, testing hypotheses for more than 2,000 years. Visit peterbogosian.com to learn more. I'm Peter Bogosian. Welcome to the first episode of All Things Reconsidered, where we consider what in the world happened to NPR. We know we're not the only ones wondering. If you search NPR has in Google, the first result is NPR has changed. Next, NPR has gone downhill. Sixth in the list, can NPR be defunded? And that doesn't even have the word has in it. Intelligent people want to know, is there value in NPR journalism anymore? With all things reconsidered, we aim to answer that question. In today's episode, I sit down with my good friend Matt Thornton, fifth-degree black belt and Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach, owner of Straight Blast Gym, and author of The Gift of Violence. Matt and I reconsider two NPR stories. The first is an example of how NPR responded to the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse. The second is an interview NPR's Steve Inskeep conducted with Ibram X. Kendi, a frequent guest on NPR programs. We'll also hear insights from a former public media journalist on our segment called Morning Sedition. But first, we hear from former NPR listeners about why they stopped listening and supporting NPR. Today, Matt and I are going to listen to John, James, and Brian give their testimonials for when and why they stopped listening to NPR. Okay. So, John is first up. Let's listen to John. For me, there was no one moment or one story like, hey, can you believe this ridiculous story? And that was a moment I've turned it off ever since. It's not really like that. To me, it's been a gradual thing. Uh, listen, since 1980, I'm from D.C., moved up here in the 90s to New York, uh, volunteered for pledge drives uh, when I had no money. Uh, uh, so obviously, it's something I believed in. Never never got a tote bag, but I certainly volunteered a lot. Um, and I do still listen, though that's so little now that it's negligible compared to in the past. Uh, and NPR has long since been, it, it, none of this is really new. Uh, the occasions in the past, laughably PC, something you could sort of needle, uh, but it has changed. Uh, and that's why it's a good idea, your project. Um, I, I could say, you know, now it, it seems it's crossed over into, of course, now it's everything is about uh, remediation of past wrongs. Uh, it's like being the coverage has just become, you know, predictable, dumber, uh, insufferable, insipid, um, uh, not engaging at all, and, uh, and like being struck between the eyes with a ball peen hammer. Anyway, uh, <laughs> in my case, I remember 18 years ago when Bob Edwards was pushed, pushed out. Uh, and at least in that many years, probably over 20 years, it's all their own air talent has adopted what I've come to think of as the Ira Glass inspired NPR concerned voice. Um, one thing came to mind uh, was a couple of years ago, a story admonishing me to decolonize my bookshelf. So, you know, <laughs> out went Rudyard Kipling. You better believe it. Um, the, uh, there was a story year ago about geocaching. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. I, I had a nephew who got into geocaching when he was a kid. I could send that along to him, but alas, the story was about geocaching while black. It's like, Jesus Christ. Uh, recent story about it, a uh, wave of layoffs at Netflix. And it said, many of the those laid off had been recently hired women of color. Jesus God. Um, and you know, so those are maybe funny examples. Of, you know, shortwave science broadcast a daily thing where they speak to you like they're nursing you and reading you good night moon uh, to more insidious uh, things, of course, about race. Uh, anyway, there you have it. Okay. So I feel his pain. I, fe I feel his pain. I, I will say about this, this is atypical. I, so in all of the, I've, we've listened to a lot of these and I've spoken to an unbelievable number of people. Most people will not say that it was gradual. Most people in my experience, in fact, I, I had this idea when I was talking to my childhood friend, Tim, about I was basically complaining to NPR and said, I really want to, I want to listen. I want to trust it. And he said, yeah, I stopped listening to NPR when I'm like, wow, 
Like almost everybody has a story. So I, I think that the idea that it's gradual, that's a rarity. Most people, there's uh, most people in my experience, there was a moment. But here was a guy who was so into it that when he didn't have money, he volunteered for pledge mm-hmm. drives. He was a volunteer at a pledge drive. I mean, that's somebody who really believed in the mission. That's a commitment. And now he finds it insufferable. And insifered. Like getting hit in the head with a ball peen hammer, <laughs> which has exactly been my experience recently that doing the show. Terrific. Sorry I had to sorry to it's the hardest thing I've ever asked anybody to listen to NPR my my team. Yeah, I mean I, that pretty much says it all. I thought I thought what he said about also about the coverage being dumb was important. Yeah. Because it is dumb. Yeah, it's it's dumb. a it's just yeah. a there's no data, there's no opposing viewpoint, there's no nothing about it that's going to make you think. It's going to tell you, you already know what they're going to say. It, it, you either believe that narrative or you don't, and they're just yeah. going to feed you that narrative over and over again. And it's it's like the, t- it's Why it's would dumb. you, with so many good podcasts, so many good audio, why would you want to listen to something that's dumb? Yeah, why it's would going you to waste your time, to misinformation? misinform you. Listen, even if you believe this stuff, even if you completely buy into critical social justice, wouldn't you want to listen to a thoughtful, smart, opposing view if for literally no other reason that you could formulate than that you could formulate arguments against those positions? Yeah, there's a lot of people that would say you don't really understand your own position well unless you can articulate accurately your opponent's position. Yes. And uh, I, I've always found that to be true. Any time I've had a position that I held deeply, I've always wanted to know what the opposing points of view are. And I don't think I'm alone in that. But you're not going to get that from NPR. Again, it's dumb. Yeah. Dumb. I like that word. It's dumb. All right. Let's listen to James. Hey, Peter. This is James Rotano from Glendale. And uh, I wanted to tell you my NPR uh, defection story. Um, Yeah, I was a longtime listener. I probably listened to NPR pretty regularly for about like probably 20 years since like the mid nineties is when I started like my professional life and working in an office. And um, we would listen to morning edition to like basically just without any, you know, it was just the routine. Um, we used to call it the NPR murmur because we couldn't hear, it was just like this murmur of someone's voice and you couldn't really tell the details, but anyways. Um, so yeah, then I think I, I became a pretty avid listener, especially to the Bush years. Um, probably like most people, I got really kind of wrapped up in a lot of the uh, progressive politics at the time and fighting the good fight and giving money to NPR. I, I, I pledged pretty regularly. Um, I think about 2014, 2015 is when it broke for me. I think the the lead up to the Trump election, um, I can't name the specific issue, but there was just a, t- a, there was a change in tone. And I think it just goes for all media. I don't think it's just NPR, but I think um, they seem to get teen vogued is the term I used at the time and still to use. Um, that was what I, I was the only thing I could call it before I could call it anything else before woke or anything. Um, I seem to notice a, a very teen Vogue kind of vibe pop in. And I had a friend who worked at more at, at all things considered for like 10 years. And she admitted to me, she's like, yeah, we're, we're getting the teen Vogue generation in here and it's changing everything, it's changing the language. Um, yeah. So it's fascinating. It really is that time. I think Jonathan Haidt talks about it too. Um, so anyways, yeah, my listening kind of uh, just stopped a little bit. And then I think when Trump got elected, I started fact checking some of the stories that they were talking about. And they just would, a lot of the stuff was just abjectly false. And I think from there, I thought like, I can't, I can't be, I can't be a part of this anymore. So yeah, I, I haven't listened. I haven't listened in about four or five years. Um, Cause I would call it almost unbearable at this point to listen to that. Um, and uh, frankly, if they got pulled off the air, I don't think it would be a big loss. I, I, I can't believe I would ever hear myself saying that. But I don't think, uh, I mean, it would be a loss in a certain sense, but I think it's been gone for a good seven years, maybe longer. So anyways, um, yeah, so that's my NPR story. I thought I would share that with you. Um, I'm a big fan. Thanks for everything you're doing with uh, your Substack as well as your YouTube channel, man. Those are great, great interviews you're doing and are some of the best stuff on the web right now. So thank you and uh, good luck with this. Cool. Thanks, James. We appreciate that. Wow, there's a, there's a lot there. He pledged, Teen Vogue nailed it, didn't it? Huh? Teen Vogue. The Teen Vogue, that's it. Perfect. Spot on. Perfect. If you watch Teen Vogue Twitter, it's it's identical to it's NPR. It's completely insane, right? Um, conspicuously ideolo- ideological, naked, f- blatantly forwarding certain narratives. Um, you know, and again, lowest common denominator, dumb, which dumb. is the word we heard in the last. And again, somebody that donated to NPR was a pledge regularly. Person. 
obviously very much against the war. Yeah, together, now he right? thinks it. Now he finds it unbearable. Insufferable. Yeah, he finds it unbearable. So th that's the other thing that keeps coming up. Fact checking. Fact checking. That's that's the death knell for NPR. If anybody out there is watching and and you you still listen to NPR and you think both Pete and I are, have gone off the rails and we're wrong, just do me a favor. Just fact check some of the stories you hear. If they do mention any data, if there is any evidence to it, make note of that. Fact check it. And I think you'll come to the same conclusion. Yeah. And then, as we've been saying all along, do they have experts who actually believe? Do they push back on their own experts, their own narratives, like the other guy said, there's, he was on a panel, every, the James Damore episode, everybody, or segment, everybody believe the same things, there's no pushback, so fact, don't believe us for any of this, fact check the stuff yourself. Doesn't take long. <clears throat> no, it's, no, not Five at all. Five minute Google search and Correct. you'll be doing more journalism than they are. Uh, let's take a listen to what Brian has to say. Hi, my name is Brian. I used to listen to NPR for about a decade until 2017, 2018. Um, and it was more of a general bias that was just more and more noticeable. Um, but the final straw was a gun control guest that they had on. And uh, as a gun owner, a concealed weapons permit holder in Massachusetts, I really have to be aware of gun laws and like a lot of that kind of stuff. And there's, there's no other way to describe what this person was talking about as anything other than just made up lies. And I thought that NPR had some amount of standards, but clearly uh, I, I was wrong. <laughs> Made up lies. Yeah. Well, again, same thing. Here you have the case of somebody who um, knows a topic well. So he's a concealed carry permit holder in Massachusetts, which is not easy to get in Massachusetts. Yeah. So he knows the gun laws, as most concealed carry permit holders do. They're, so if you take one group of people that is the most law-abiding in the country, it's concealed carry permit holders. They commit the least amount of crime. And they're also usually well aware of the gun laws in their state. And then he heard a story on NPR, and they just weren't, they were lying. They weren't reflecting the facts of the case uh, honestly. And that's what happens if you know any subject well and you turn on NPR and listen to them talk about that subject. Or if, if like we talked about previously, if you fact check one of their stories, right. you're going to find out it's just not true. Yeah. Uh, I, so it remains to be seen. So made up lies, I thought, was very, very interesting. Um, and again, that's a commonality among these episodes, fact checking abjectly false, n not, not only not presenting the data in an objective way, but presenting it in a blatantly false way mm -hmm. that people listen to and they, oh, it has the imprimatur of legitimacy. Oh, it's NPR. So there's really not much, much more to say than that. These are very sincere people. Donate to NPR. This is an enormous problem that needs to be addressed. And hopefully we can get more of your testimonies in for if you stopped listening to NPR, why did you stop? When did you stop? Was there a specific event? Um, it's all helpful. It's all helpful. Everything helps. We can put it in the second series. Uh, PeterBogosian.com, P-E-T-E-R-B-O-G-H-O-S-S-I-N.com. Just look into the camera around three minutes. Be honest, be sincere. Tell us, was there a moment? What did you think? How were you feeling? What did that mean to you to stop listening? And maybe some implications or con consequences of that. And now I'm delighted to introduce you to another person who's familiar with quitting NPR. My friend Gina Gamboni is an award-winning journalist, producer, and former host at NPR affiliate stations. Her segment is called Morning Sedition. I'm Gina Gamboni, and I used to work for public radio. Thanks for joining me for this segment of Morning Sedition. I've loved public radio as a listener since I was a child. I started donating to public radio as a college student, and I started working for public radio after being a teacher, a sound designer, and a content producer, and it seemed like the perfect fit. I still believe I was made for public radio, but 
I am astounded by what NPR has done to what public radio means. I've worked for two public radio stations, both NPR affiliates. Many people think public radio and NPR are the same thing, but they're not, which is something I'll talk about in a future episode. The main point is, I was a journalist, host, and producer for two public radio stations affiliated with NPR. I left the first small station because I got an exciting offer at a larger station. I left the larger station because of NPR. At the larger station, I was a journalist, the local host for Morning Edition, the senior producer of a podcast and broadcast program, and I became the senior producer of the station itself. I loved almost everyone I worked with. And I loved my job, even though I had to be out of bed by 4.15 in the morning, and I spent many late nights editing audio and content. Like the folks you've just heard from, and many people I've heard from, I feel that NPR content has become increasingly difficult to endure. People who are bitter about the painfulness of listening to NPR are people who used to love NPR news and programs, people who grew to trust it who listened daily and for hours at a time. Now, there have always been critics who never listened to NPR because they felt it was too liberal or too biased. And I understand that perspective. But I'm here to talk to the people who've listened for a long time, who felt like the voices on NPR were friends or family even, trusted friends and family, and who feel genuine disappointment by the turn NPR has taken. I am like many NPR listeners and employees. I'm a lifelong liberal, at least in the meaning that word used to have until recently. I've always valued a diversity of viewpoints, and I believed and continue to believe that the role of a journalist and anyone who produces content for public radio is to represent reality in all its complexity, including representing all the people who make up the public. I'm not sure anymore if NPR programming ever really did that, but I thought it did. And now it's very clear to me that NPR does not represent reality and does not represent the public. NPR has become less tolerant, less intelligent, less rational, less expansive. Meanwhile, it's become more preachy, more emotional, more activist, and more formulaic. If you find yourself increasingly disappointed when you tune into your local public radio station that is filled to the brim with NPR programs, please understand you are not alone and it's not you. It's NPR and it's outsized influence on your public radio station. Next episode, I'll talk about factors that have degraded the quality of NPR's news coverage and human interest stories. But for now, enjoy the show and please post comments, questions, or concerns you have. We read and consider all of your comments. See you next time for Morning Sedition. That was Gina Gamboni, award-winning journalist, producer, and former host at NPR affiliate stations. Thank you, Gina, for sharing your experience with us on all things reconsidered. And now, it's time for Matt and I to reconsider some of the content NPR pumps out every day through public radio stations near you. The coverage of Kyle Rittenhouse was a massive media failure. Rittenhouse was turned into a villain, particularly by outlets like NPR. The critique that followed is particularly harsh. So NPR did the thing it does best, twist the narrative. We're going to play a clip from NPR, and I want you to listen to it. Listen to the language that they use. This is the language used about a person who was just acquitted in a court of law. All right, let's play it. A range of emotions rippled through this divided country since 18-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted on Friday of all five charges he faced after he killed two men and injured a third during last summer's racial justice protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He was found not guilty of first-degree intentional homicide, first-degree reckless homicide, first-degree attempted intentional homicide, and two counts of first-degree reckless endangerment. The trial and Rittenhouse himself have become celebrity causes for the far right on a number of issues. Fox News. 
take a shot every time you hear the far right Republicans or extremists. Had a documentary team following Rittenhouse throughout the trial. We the jury find the defendant Kyle H. Self defense has not yet been mentioned, and we're 37 seconds into the clip. How do you feel, man? The jury reached the correct verdict. Self-defense is not illegal. And on his show Friday night, Fox News' Tucker Carlson showed a longer version of that clip before promoting an upcoming exclusive interview with Rittenhouse. You're reminded that maybe the one person in America who hasn't yet weighed in on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial is Kyle Rittenhouse himself. So for months, CNN and MSNBC and Kamala Harris have been allowed to define him. But that ends Monday. We're sitting down for a long interview with Kyle Rittenhouse. You can see it on this show Monday night. Okay, so what is going on here? You can see that the NPR reporter is not talking about the trial. She is talking about Republicans and Fox News. Notice the shift. Notice the turn. Rittenhouse has been vigorously defended by some Republican lawmakers and at least two Republican congressmen, including North Carolina's Madison Cawthorn and Florida's Matt Gates, have talked about giving Rittenhouse an internship. Gates expressed interest in the 18-year-old even before he was acquitted, as he did Wednesday on the right-wing media outlet Newsmax. He is not guilty. He deserves a not guilty verdict, and I sure hope he gets it because you know what? Kyle Rittenhouse would probably make a pretty good congressional intern. We may reach out to him. So now what have they done? Now they're connecting him to Newsmax. And we believe the only people who saw Kyle Rittenhouse's actions in self-defense were far-right Republicans and extremists? Really? There's also been growing concerns that extremists on the right are using the Rittenhouse verdict as further justification to spread messages of violence. NPR's Odette Youssef covers domestic extremism and joins us now. Good morning, Odette. Wait, wait a second. What does the Kyle Rittenhouse, what, what does this have to do with domestic extremism? It has absolutely nothing to do with domestic, domestic nothing. extremism. Nothing to do with domestic extremism, nothing to do with race. Never did. Good morning, Layla. So we know that the day the verdict was read, many on the right, including the far right, were celebrating. How has their message evolved <laughs> since then among those on the extreme right? Okay, I have, <laughs> I have to stop you there. So I, like a lot of people, followed the Rittenhouse case very closely. I think I probably watched every day of it. And my interest in the case was because the Rittenhouse case is very clearly a case of self-defense. That's what it's about. Okay, The, the Rittenhouse case is a, a story of four white guys involved in an altercation, one of them defending himself and using his right, his natural right, to defend himself. So when he was found not guilty, I was elated, as was just about everybody I knew, as was my wife, as was, I think, anybody that was actually paying attention to the to the trial and to the facts of the case. If the only thing you knew about the Kyle Rittenhouse case was things that you learned on NPR, or MSNBC, or CNN, you might be upset by it because the, the narrative between what the media was saying about the case was actually going on and the facts on the ground were two very, very different things. And that was apparent early on. It was, it was apparent long before he was rightly found not guilty. We'll talk a little bit about that more as we go, but I just want to make that clear in the beginning. A good percentage, I would say, I don't have polling numbers, but but probably half of the United States was happy when Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty. Right. And those people aren't far right extremist militia members, alt right, you know, right wing terrorists. Those are everyday people like me and you and people who think you have a right to defend yourself right. when people are coming to take your and, life. And of course, we're happy that he was exonerated. It, he was found not guilty by a jury of his peers. And he was clearly not guilty. This, this is one of those cases where everything was on video, thankfully. Yeah. Well, Layla, we're seeing a few themes emerge, um, some of which have been expected. For example, you know, the valorization of Kyle Rittenhouse, which, you know, honestly began almost immediately after he turned himself in last year. Um, so she wants to talk about the valorization. How about we also talk about the demonization of Kyle Rittenhouse? Let me just go into this real quick. The media narrative on Kyle Rittenhouse that was pushed forward, especially by NPR, was very clear, right? There was a group of peaceful protesters in Kenosha, peaceful protesters, who were uh, out there to fight for racial justice, and they were attacked and assaulted by a far-right white supremacist uh, militia member who crossed state lines. He Went across state lines. Across state lines. Across state lines. He crossed state lines. His mama drove him across state lines. Across state lines. Came across state lines. Crossed state lines with an illegal firearm and then murdered two of them and uh, shot another. That's the media narrative. Okay, that's what was put forward. The reality now, is. Now, yeah. What, what, what's what's the reality? The what reality are the facts? is. 
uh, Kenosha was anything but a, a, a mostly peaceful protest. There were blocks in that city that were burning to the ground, right, the previous night. This case never had anything to do with race. And NPR and MSNBC and a lot of the other media outlets judiciously worked really hard not to ever mention the race of the victim. They would mention Kyle Rittenhouse's race. He was white. But they would never mention the race of the people who were shot. They would just say BLM protesters. So when polling was done after the trial, a lot of people thought that they were black. They thought the victims were black. In fact, this is a case, like I said, of four white guys involved in a self-defense issue. No... Um, Kyle didn't fire the first round, or as Joe Scarborough said. Here we have a 17-year-old kid, underage, said he bought an AR-15 because he thought it was cool. He drove across state, had his mother drive him across state lines. He appointed himself a militia member. He goes around and he ends up unloading, what, 60 rounds, kills two people, wounds a third person. No, he didn't cross state lines with an illegal weapon. No, the weapon he had wasn't illegal. He was allowed to carry it. And no, he didn't murder anybody. He defended himself. He tried to get away. They chased him down. They tried to grab his weapon. Another one tried to hit him in the head with a skateboard. And he did what he had to do, armed with a rifle at that moment. And he defended himself. And just before we go on, It's like opposite land. It's opposite land. You can see how different those realities are, which you can check for yourself on this case. It's very easy to look up. And the media narrative are completely different things. The NPR narrative. The NPR narrative. And the worst thing I think that happened at the trial was when you had the Portly District Attorney who came on there and said, you know, Mike, Mike, no, no, Portly. Portly. He said, sometimes you have to take a beating. Let me tell you something, folks. If you're listening, this is very important. You don't have to take a beating, okay? More people are killed in this country every single year with bare hands that are shot by all long rifles put together, including the ever-deadly and mysterious assault rifles, right? More people die from being beaten to death, a lot of times after one or two punches. So no, you don't ever want to take a beating. You want to defend yourself. And regardless of what that um, unethical prosecutor tried to state, that's not the law. That's never been the law in the United States. You've always had a right to defend yourself. And that is why Kyle was found not guilty. And we'll talk about who, who he actually ended up having to defend himself against in a minute. But I just want to make that clear before we go on, because they're still pushing, even after he was found not guilty, they're still pushing the bullshit narrative. All right. But now we're also seeing elected officials are calling for it. So, for example, one Florida state representative calling for a federal holiday to be declared for November 19th and calling it Kyle Rittenhouse Day um, and also calling for Rittenhouse to run for Congress. Um, An Arizona state senator calling for Kyle Rittenhouse statues to be built. Um, But there are some other themes that have been, you know, perhaps more immediately disturbing to those that have been monitoring the far right Namely, messaging around a belief. Monitoring the far right. The far Again, right. what does Kyle Rittenhouse have to do with the far right? If you watched his interviews, which he gave after he was found not guilty, he's not that political. I don't even think yeah. he's a conservative. Yeah. In fact, I think he said that you know he, he was an uh, Obama supporter. Had nothing to do with politics. He went down there because he's a young man. He's 17. He's a little immature. He saw a city burning down. He had an opportunity to make some money trying to defend uh, this business owner who had a car lot and didn't want his car lot to, to go down into ashes like the other one had in the peaceful protest and wound up being assaulted and attacked by a group of violent criminal actors, all of which had long felony convictions. We should talk for about things. that for a well, second. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk so about that. There were three people because involved in this. Because if you don't talk about that, we know they're not going to hear it on NPR. Well, they're not going to hear it. And the other thing is she, she wants to characterize everybody that wanted to valorize um, Kyle Rittenhouse. What about the people that want to valorize Kyle, Kyle's uh, supposed victims, the people that he had to defend himself against? Let's talk about those heroes. Okay, let's talk about it. Rosenbaum. He was charged with 11 counts of child molestation, two of which he was convicted of during a plea bargain. And just to be clear what that means, that means he was raping 5 to 11-year-old boys. He was anally raping boys. That's who went after and tried to grab the gun of Kyle. And yes, if you're legally carrying a firearm in the street in the United States and somebody tries to grab your gun, you should shoot them. Okay. Second one, Huber was a repeat repeat offender of domestic abuse. Uh, One of the charges was choking and threatening to gut a younger boy. He was the one that tried to hit Kyle on the head with a skateboard, and everybody said, well, that doesn't warrant deadly force. Let me tell you something. Getting hit in the head with a skateboard does warrant deadly force. If you don't think so, let me hit you in the head with a skateboard. We'll find out. (laughs) And the third one was Rosencrantz. He was the one who on the stand admitted that before he was shot, he pointed his pistol 
at Kyle's head. He said that during the trial. And yes, if somebody points a pistol at your head, that is above all else the time that you should pull the trigger if you also have a gun. And he was convicted previously of um, being intoxicated and 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 carrying a firearm at the same time. And he's he was illegally carrying his pistol, unlike Kyle, who was legally carrying his rifle. And in that, just to be fair, I would mention Kyle's arrest record too, except he doesn't have one. But that's that's who they're valorizing. Keep that in mind when you when you see pictures of these guys put up like they're some heroes. These are men who rape young boys, and they weren't out there to protest social justice. They don't give a shit about social justice. In fact, one of them was using the N-word constantly, trying to antagonize some of the black protesters that, they, that were there. They were there to help burn down Kenosha. They wanted to enjoy the fun and burn and loot and riot. That's why they were there. That's who those people are. That's who NPR is defending. The belief in some extreme corners that vigilantum is, in fact, okay and perhaps even a duty. Um, And we're also seeing a surge in anti-Semitic messaging. What does any of that have to do with (laughs) anti-Semitic messaging? (laughs) Where did that come from? The only thing they haven't actually mentioned yet is Nazis, but I'm sure they'll put one in here in a second. (laughs) Can you get into that a bit more? I mean, why would this case and the verdict be giving rise to anti-Semitism? Yeah, you know, it might seem surprising and stretch, right? <laughs> yep. You know, this wasn't really a case where religion was uh, involved. Right. Um, interesting. Religion, uh, anti-Semitic, in- interesting. This really ties back to a grievance that many on the right have had around media coverage of Kyle Rittenhouse. You know, Imagine that. Imagine having a grievance <laughs> about media coverage when you can see the difference between the way NPR covered the story, peaceful protesters out for social justice who are probably black, shot by a white militia member far right who crossed the state lines with an illegal gun to hunt them down, compared to the actual reality of what happened, violent criminals and child molesters who were out on the street trying to burn down a building who, who attacked a young man who was legally carrying his weapon and got shot and got got what they deserve, to be honest with you, in that particular situation. So yeah, when you have such a massive discrepancy between the actual reality of the facts on the ground and what the media wants to present, because what they really wanted this to be about was race. Yeah, they would have exactly. loved it if those victims exactly. were black. They would have loved it. They would have ate it up. But because they weren't, they had to imply they were and lie about it the entire time. So right. yeah, a whole bunch of people many of whom aren't conservative or on the right, but just like would like to have honest media have a bone to pick with the way our, our mainstream media covered this particular story. Absolutely. Right. He was demonized, uh, mischaracterized, um, maligned in news coverage, um, you know, That'd be accurate. up to and during the trial. Um, Interesting. For, interesting. Really think about that for a second. Anybody who doesn't promote their narrative is far right. Absolutely. Yeah, you're a Nazi. Yeah. So if you don't basically or anti-Semitic or anti-Semitic, as we know, too. there's no anti-Semitism on the left. Right. Right. One person who is able to really sort of clarify how that connects back to some of the um, sort of extremist ideology is Devin Burkhart. He's executive director of the Institute for Research and Education on Human Rights. Very much part of it was the anti-Semitic belief that Jews control the media. And as a there, there is, just to be clear here, there is not even a slight iota or even <laughs> insinuation anywhere in the entire trial or anywhere in any of, any of the coverage that's come out about what happened in this incident that it had anything at all to do with anti-Semitism. That has nothing to do with this case. So what you have here is you have NPR lying and mischaracterizing the facts of the case for over a year, for a good portion of a year, until the trial. The trial comes out. He's found not guilty, rightly so, because the facts are there. And he was found not guilty by a group of his peers, because how could you find him otherwise when you saw what happened to him? And instead of NPR coming back and and doing the the honorable thing and posting a retraction or talking about, hey, say, maybe we got some of the facts wrong. Maybe we could improve our reporting. Now they want to try and tie him somehow with an invisible shoestring and no evidence to some anti-Semitic rhetoric. And as a result, it spewed not only into that, but then it allowed them to move beyond that to talk about how, you know, it was an opportunity to go after Jews writ large and to (laughs) reclaim the United States as a white Christian nation. So to clarify, Leila, you know, we don't have any evidence that Cal Rittenhouse was 
<laughs> Imagine that. We don't have any evidence Imagine that anything that. you said has anything to do with what we're talking about. But just to clarify, could you could you say that over again so we can try and associate Kyle Rittenhouse with anti-Semites on the national public radio, please? <laughs> we've listened to a lot of really bad stories here, and we've talked about it, and we've explained why they're bad. be honest with you, I think this is probably the worst one. This is the worst case of just absolute complete and total lack of integrity. Yeah. We don't have any evidence that Cal Rittenhouse was a member of any such group. Right. Um, but we are seeing lots of hope that Rittenhouse will sue and bankrupt mainstream news outlets for their coverage. For those who've been justifying violence with the notion that there's no political solution, are we seeing anywhere that perhaps in this verdict there may be a political path for the ex- for extremists, for extremist ideas? You know, yeah, Extremists. I mean, that's been so interesting to me because we're kind of seeing two things here. You know, on the one hand, um, extremists who push for bloodshed extremists. are always going to be focused in, on that, and they continue to be. Um, you know, there's concern that they're interpreting the verdict to mean that they can now retake streets that they largely felt they had lost last year. What is she talking about? I have no what idea. Does what does any of I've, that have to do with Kyle? Kyle I, Rittenhouse is not a right-wing extremist. He's not a racist. He wasn't there for political reasons. He was a 17-year-old immature kid who thought he had an opportunity to help defend. I don't even know businesses. If, I don't even know if she knows what she's talking. She about. has no idea what she's talking about. You know, in the immediate aftermath of the George Floyd uh, killing. Millions of Americans demonstrated against police brutality and for racial justice. And on the far right, you know, there was this notion that they had lost the streets. Mm. So, you know, in a way, the Rittenhouse verdict may be a key turning point for them. But on the other hand, the verdict is also prompting some uh, to call for, for, for others within the far right to work through established political channels. Here's Burkhardt again. The disturbing thing is there are many on those on the far right who see this as more of an opportunity to engage in the political process to to further advance their agenda. You know, the Proud Boys, for instance, were circulating a number of different means saying this trial indicates the importance of getting friends in local office. For instance, they cited the judge in this particular case as allies. You know, there's no evidence that the judge was somehow in their pocket. Oh, great. So he smears the judge by repeating something that supposedly, I have no idea if this is true, probably not, considering it's coming from NPR, supposedly far-right people try to identify with the judge, and he wants to mention that on National Public Radio to now smear the judge as if he's an ally for far-right extremists. Right, and to connect them with the Proud Boys, who, again, had absolutely nothing to do with Kyle Rittenhouse. Having watched the trial, the judge seemed like he did a pretty good job, especially considering he was dealing with two totally inept and corrupt district attorneys as far as I'm concerned, that's my opinion. But he followed the law very strictly, as far as I could tell on that trial. Just the idea that they link the judge to the Proud Boys. You know, there's no evidence that the judge was somehow in their pocket. You know, these extremists are opportunists taking advantage of the moment, but it indicates there may be... The extremists, not not the people, not... They may be pursuing an all-prongs approach um, to move their agenda forward, both within the political system and on the streets. NPR's Odette Youssef, thank you. Thank you. That was probably the most egregious example of just, I don't even know what to call it, bad propaganda that I've yet heard. Again, keep in mind the context. This came out after Rittenhouse was found not guilty on all charges. When NPR had, up to that point, pushed this false narrative that I described at the beginning of this episode. And rather than be honest about it, they try to connect the Rittenhouse case to anti-Semitic, far-right rhetoric, militia, right-wing extremists, which the, the case had nothing to do with that. And it's uh, it's just a really, really dishonest thing to do. And yeah, I am one of those people that hope Rittenhouse would get out there and sue some of these news organizations because I think what they did was terrible for America. It's once again designed to drive a wedge right. between race relations in our country. It was done at a time when a lot of cities were burning down in these mostly peaceful protests. And um, I think the only thing that will stop them is when it when it hits their pocketbook. So I hope he does sue them. And just to be clear, you know, Ibram X. Kendi commented on this. This is the other episode that NPR did about the Rittenhouse case. And this was after he was found, Rittenhouse was found not guilty. And Kendi once again described Rittenhouse as a white supremacist. 
Now, just to be clear, there is zero evidence that this case had anything to do with race. Everything, everybody that was involved was white. Or that he was a white supremacist. Or that, of course, there's anything to do with race, meaning he's not a white supremacist, had no white supremacist. There's nothing that points to that. That's just pure slander. In the same breath, Kendi said, I have no doubt that if the roles were reversed, that a black person, you know, would be convicted. And ironically, at the same day that Rittenhouse was found not guilty, you had the trial of Andrew Coffey, who was right. also found not guilty, who was a black man who was actually shooting at police officers and found not guilty because in his case, it was also found by the court to be a case of self-defense. And we look, went back and looked to see if they, how NPR covered that, just right. in fairness, and they didn't mention it at all. Not a peep. Story was never mentioned. Correct. And imagine for a second um, if, he had found, if he had been found guilty. Do you think they'd mention it? That's if a great Coffey question. If been found guilty, do you think they'd have episode after episode if Kendi would be bringing it up that, over and over that's again? That's a great question. I will leave that to our viewers. I think, the, I think the viewers can figure it out. Ibram X. Kendi has practically had his own show on NPR. NPR has wholly adopted Kendi's ideology of anti-racism. You're either an anti-racist or you're a racist. Today, Matt and I are going to take a look at one of Kendi's clips. This is from June 13th, 2022, in an interview with Steve Inskeep. Some people claim they want to protect children from the writings of Ibram X. Kendi. He wrote a history of racist thought and a book on how to be an anti-racist. Activists in Virginia, North Carolina, and elsewhere critiqued school districts that invited Kendi to speak. He is used as a symbol of the debate over critical race theory, which he doesn't teach. In truth, though, he is part of the debate over how, if at all, to teach kids about race in America. Ibram X. Kendi is also a parent with a kid in school. How old's your daughter? My daughter is six years old. Oh, that's great. What's your name? What a sincere voice he has. Her name is Imani. She's in kindergarten. Kendi has now written a book called How to Raise an Anti-Racist, part study, part memoir. He says his experience parenting has taught him the perils of the same subject he's studied for years. I think in many ways we're, we're socialized as, as parents to fear talking to our kids about race and racism. It's a painful subject, whatever your race, but Kendi prefers to talk about it. My daughter recently asked when she was watching a, a graduation ceremony for a medical school, she asked, where are all the brown people? Hmm. And we as parents should not just dismiss that. We should explain why there are not more brown people graduating from medical school. Uh, so she doesn't see the lack of brown people. And let's see what his answer to that is, right? So his daughter comes to him with a question. Let's see how he responds to that. As normal. How did you explain that? We, we explained about bad rules, and she knows all about bad rules because she doesn't like the rule of when she's supposed to go to bed at night. We explained <laughs> about unfair rules, which she doesn't like either, um, and she was able to understand it. There, in simple language, is one of Kendi's key ideas about race. That's the reason. It's bad rule. What else could it possibly be but bad rules? That, you keep going? Yeah. He doesn't worry so much if you have pure thoughts, if you say you see race or don't see race. He is focused on society's rules. If school testing shows black or white or Asian kids performing differently, that does not mean the kids of one race have some cultural or social problem. It may mean the test or the standards or the schools are racist. He's criticized by some conservatives and by some liberals. I think of Matthew Iglesias, who was a liberal writer who is a critic of some of your work, uh, and in some articles says he thinks you don't even want to discuss gaps, broadly speaking, between black and white students today or students of other races, because those gaps are all artificial. They're all produced by racism. Is that how you see it? That's actually the core tenet of anti-racism. Any disparity in outcome must be rooted in the system. There has to be some kind of system-wide problem, system-wide discrimination that explains why that is. The, that's the only, it's univariate. There's no other variable or explanation. No, what, what, what I actually I see is that when you have a gap between racial groups, and I'm emphasizing groups, not individuals, mm -hmm. 
But when you have a gap between racial groups, whether that's in education, in you know, incarceration rates and health disparities and wealth, there's two explanations for that gap. Either that gap is the result of bad rules, as I would tell my daughter, uh, or racist policies, or that gap is the result of a racial hierarchy. In other words, certain kids are smarter or they're working harder. Wow. And those ideas... That's insane. That's completely insane. Yeah. Okay, so those are the only two explanations for the gap. There's no other possible explanation for the gap. Bad rules or there's some kind of built-in racial hierarchy. All right, you want to you take that? Well, that's going to fall apart as soon as you start talking specifics and you talk about why sometimes Asian-American kids do better in school than... You know, and we know we or, know the data is out there for that number of hours studied, you know, tiger parenting, uh, father present in the home. Yep. Yeah. It's as if he's never read the arguments against his own position. But more more to the point, he's teaching his daughter that any disparity in outcome, any any difference between racial groups is either bad rules, racist system or genetic. Right. Where in the where in that philosophy is the room for personal responsibility in your own behavior? Like as a as a father, I have five kids. The number one thing I'm trying to get across to my kids because I love my kids and I want them to be successful is that personal responsibility is really important. And if you want something, you have to work hard for it. And if you work hard for it, you'll get it. Life's not always fair, but you've got to try as hard as you can. You're responsible for your own, the outcome that you're going to see in your life. And what he's teaching her, his daughter is the exact opposite of that. If you don't get something, if you don't achieve something, it's because the system is racist right. or some kind of genetic difference between the races. I don't know anybody who seriously argues. There's always some tiny t percentage of people who are legitimately racist. On the fringe, yeah. Yeah, on the fringe. But nobody is j legitimately arguing that there's massive, these big differences between the races. The argument is about culture and habits and how some culture and some habits lead to certain outcomes better 100%. than others. And he, he hasn't even addressed that, won't even address that with this false, um, just ridiculous the false idea. dichotomy. It's yeah, a false it's, dichotomy, yeah. It's interesting to me. Okay, so so let's talk about what, what a liberal would think about this for a second. So a liberal would think that there are disparities in outcomes. Why are there disparities in outcomes? First of all, even taking a step back from a liberal, an evidence-based person would just want to look at the evidence and figure out what it is. And I wish that Inskeep would have pushed back more on the cultural factors. Like, why, why couldn't these disparities be cultural? Well, I can't imagine that he's not going to. So, I mean, if he doesn't say anything about that, that's absolutely ridiculous. Because I would think anybody who hears this and hears that any gap, any di difference right. between racial groups is going to be due to racism or some genetic difference, like nature, not nurture, that has to to just scream bullshit to right. anybody totally. that hears that. I, right. I would hope. All right. So so let, let's hear what you have to say. And if I can remember, let's. I just want to talk about how a liberal would frame this or think about this. Those racist ideas have either been consistently disproven or they haven't been proven. Would you go so far as to say that it's racist to... Uh, observe that a group of black kids, for example, is not doing as well in, in reading and that they need to focus on it more. Is that aiming in the wrong softball, wrong direction in your view? So I think it all depends on the context, because, you know, would I love to have all kids to be, you know, reading, you know, at a grade level, at a higher level? Uh, of course. But when you make a claim, for instance, that those kids are not literate. So you, you go from reading to literacy in general, when there are multiple forms of literacy. So a kid, for instance, may not be reading well, but he may be or she may be extremely articulate. And then when we say, claim that a certain group of kids are reading, let's say at a lower level because of their own cultural or behavioral deficiencies, that's also a problem. What's the problem with that? I, I, I don't quite understand what would be the problem with that. Is the reason why uh, Asian American kids tend to score higher on test scores because 
they're genetically superior to white American kids? Is that what he's saying? Or have had the rules of the United States just been geared and altered to work against white Americans? It must be one or the other, according to Kendi, right? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not I mean, it just seems so obvious that different cultural patterns, trends, and behaviors yield different outcomes. It's not just obvious. It's been proven and shown, and there's mountains of evidence that have going back decades about that. that well, maybe Steve Inskeep will talk about that and push back. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> push back on that. I totally get what you're talking about when you talk about individuals that you may need to pr approach differently. But I'm sure that somebody is listening to you and thinking of George W. Bush's old phrase about the soft bigotry of low expectations. Do you just want certain kids to skate? So when you actually... Another idiotic softball question. Actually look at studies. Researchers have found that... I would love it if somebody said, you know, when you just look at studies, researchers, I'd love to see the actual studies. Right. I'd love to say, okay, so then a thoughtful person or a person who's actually curious about what's true can go back and look at the methodologies of the studies. Black students tend to actually perform better with black teachers. And meaning they're more likely to graduate high school, they're more likely to graduate college if they've had a black teacher, even a single black teacher during elementary school. So then researchers try to figure out, well, why is that the case? Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons they found is that black teachers tend to have higher expectations for the same black students than white teachers. And so- Wouldn't that be cultural? It's not genetic. Right. It is incredibly important for all teachers to have the same high expectations for all students. I think I heard you sort of agree with George W. Bush's bumper sticker there. <laughs> well, George W. Bush was, was, was making the case, for instance, that the problem is teachers. And, and let me just say, Steve, that part of what happens is people are trying to connect it to a group. So some people are like, it's the students. Other people are like, it's the teachers. And what I'm saying is, why can't we look at our policies and practices? Mm -hmm. It sounds eminently reasonable, and you don't want to put blame on people. This is where we'd have to get more granular. <clears throat> well, there's a the next the step, right? What are those policies exactly. and practices? You're waiting for him to bring that forward. I've yet to hear anything yeah, about that. Exactly. What do you think about, not just as a writer, but also as a parent, when you learn that other parents or lawmakers or activists specifically object to kids learning your words and ideas? I, I think it's a travesty. <laughs> I think it's a travesty because anyone who's actually read my work will know that I'm encouraging adults and children. It's a travesty that this man doesn't, people don't read this. It's a travesty that Steve Inskeep doesn't have someone who who is a thoughtful, liberal-leaning person that doesn't give a sincere critique of what Kendi's positions are. That's the travesty in this. To see different racial groups as equals, to not see... Who doesn't think that? Some lunatic in the fringe in, can in some place in the South, maybe. Yeah, it would be nice to hear the actual arguments against Kendi's position, which we're not hearing here. We're hearing uh, uh, straw man arguments right. that, that aren't anything I've ever read about um, against and that him. is the one of the things that consistently runs through all these clips. Right. They're criticizing positions that people simply do not hold. I can't get past the false dichotomy of, I can't imagine a situation, well, it's difficult for me to imagine a situation where I come to my children and I explain to them that the difference between different groups or perhaps in their case, the reason why they're not achieving something is either genetic or the system is rigged against you. Unless the system is actually rigged right. against them, in right. which case, where is the system rigged okay. against them? Because so, the first thing I'd want to do is find out where it is. So that's right. So Helen Pluckrose had a wonderful thing at a university uh, in Portland. I will not mention the name of. They had like some crazy, like 500 faculty members work for some insane number of hours to, to um, overcome racism in the system. A anyway. But Helen Pluckrose, in a single tweet, she's the author of Cynical Theories, wrote, if indeed the system is racist, you need to do the following things. One, identify where it is. Mm -hmm. Two, show uh, how you're going to fix it. Three, fix it. Four, assess the outcomes. 
And with all these people at the universities that are getting paid $350,000 a year to figure that out in the diversity, equity, and, and inclusion Helen department. And Helen Pluckrose writes it in a single tweet, and hundreds of faculty members working hundreds of hours. You think they'd be on that yep. now. So if the system is racist, you identify the point at which it's racist, and you show what you're going to do to fix it. This is not complicated. In no. fact, if you bring your car into the mechanic, where is the car broken? How are you going to fix it? Then you assess it. Does it work? In jujitsu, the same thing, mm -hmm. the same policy. As the problem is bad people. There's this perspective that we have a choice in the matter. When I say we, parents, teachers, caregivers have a choice in the matter as to whether we're going to say anything to our children about race. But we're saying things to our kids about race when they look at their books or they look in their curriculum and almost everyone is white. We're, we're saying who we value. Even though we don't say anything about the race of those, of those authors, of those people, we're speaking to our kids about race just as we're speaking to them about race when we diversify the books, when we diversify the offerings, when we explain to our children that the inequality that they see in our society is the result of bad rules and not bad people. You know, here's one thing I, I do have to say, because I've talked to lots of lots of parents here in Portland and other places who are concerned about a lot of these things being taught in school, as my myself and my wife were, and it was one of the reasons why we homeschool. And in every case, it's not because they don't want to talk to their children about race. It's because they don't want the teacher talking to their five or six-year-old about race. Correct. I don't need a teacher talking to my five-year-old about race. My five-year-old doesn't care about race. My five-year-old will play with anybody, and it's a non-issue. And I don't need someone who is educated in this ideology speaking yeah. to my kids about this issue. That's the problem. It's yeah. not that we're afraid yeah. to talk about it. It's that I'd rather you focus on teaching my child to read. Right. It is interesting that <clears throat> it's constantly portrayed like this, like don't say gay. No, it's that people who subscribe to an ideology, and, and we'll, we should talk about this at a future point, people who subscribe to an ideology get out of co teacher colleges of education and they indoctrinate or teach people that ideology. At the very least, they're in the orbit of the ideology, critical race theory, intersectionality, critical social justice. It goes by many names and has many flavors. Parents don't want teachers get pushing or foisting that ideology on kids. Right. It's not that they don't want to talk about race. It, it's just a gross mischaracterization of what's true. And I have a sneaky suspicion that Kendi is never going to get very specific about those rules that uh, are the supposed reason for these differences. Right. For the same reason that people that hoax Bigfoot always have the picture fuzzy. Right. I don't think he can. Right. But at, at the very least, I would like a journalist to ask and maybe have somebody else on who actually That's is. Okay. Holds the opposing point of view okay. so we can hear the argument. All right. So let's talk about that. So, Okay. He asks softball questions. That's fine. So is for, you have two choices here. You have Ibram X. Kendi on, and you ask him softball questions like we just saw. Or you have Ibram X. Kendi on, and you ask him hardball questions mm -hmm. that he has to think about where you demand that he produce evidence and data and drill down on ideas. Or you ask softball questions and have somebody who disagrees, who's thoughtful, and knowledgeable and not a hack come on sure right so you have some kind of integrity or balance in the system and you're not just forwarding a narrative ibram x kendi's latest book is how to raise an anti-racist thanks so much thank you okay so it just was it so how would a liberal look at this a liberal would look at this as how do we increase equality of opportunity how do we give Forget about the outcomes. How do we give everybody access to a public education at the first rate? How do we make it so that the quality of your education is not related to your zip code? And so when we think about this in terms of equality of opportunity as opposed to equality of outcome, we would have very different questions that Steve Inskeep would ask even Max Kendi. <laughs> 
Thank you for joining us for today's episode of All Things Reconsidered. We'll reconsider more next time, so subscribe on YouTube and Substack. You can find links in the description and at peterbogosian.com. We'll see you next week. This episode of All Things Reconsidered is supported by the Socratic Method, testing hypotheses for more than 2,000 years. Visit peterbogosian.com to learn more.